Something I've heard a lot from people who have been through public tragedies is that when a similar event occurs, it takes you right back to your worst days. For those of us who had lived in Montoursville, Pennsylvania, when TWA 800 took 21 from our town, March 24, 2015 was uniquely hard. That was the day German Wings Flight 9525 crashed in the French Alps. Among the 150 on board were 16 students and two teachers from a school in Germany. Montoursville alumni mobilized immediately to send notes and a teddy bear to the German school. Someone redesigned the teddy bear emblem that we'd all worn on buttons in 1996 to match the school's colors and translate the phrase forever in our hearts into German. Community members signed a banner and art students made paper cranes and Montoursville school colors to send over. We felt a kinship with these people. We had been them. To my knowledge, no one ever heard back from the German school. There could have been a thousand reasons why. They were a small town too, just as unprepared as Montoursville had been for such a tragedy. And like Montoursville, they'd been descended upon by media from around the world, something else they were undoubtedly not ready for. But I still felt good about what we had done as alumni. We were doing the same thing that mystery person in Oklahoma City had done for us years before, reaching across the miles to say, I understand and I'm here for you. We were helping in the small way we could. But while making this podcast, I met someone who made me question that idea. I'm Erica Grotto. This is Survived By. This one time, this one time, I don't want to be alone. People have been grieving with spontaneous shrines since time immemorial. When a tragedy happens, and especially an unexpected or sudden death, we want to commemorate that place or that spot in some kind of way. And we often do so by leaving mementos, going back to that site, mourning there. I mean, even elephants do this, right? So it's 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 human, but it's also very much just part of being alive is wanting to mourn and understand loss and death. A.M. Alpin is the documentary filmmaker behind The Story of the Stuff from 2015. You can watch it online and I'll link it in the show notes. Alpin was running a small art house movie theater near Virginia Tech and teaching French as an adjunct professor in 2007 when a student killed 32 people and wounded 17 in a campus shooting spree. Being in Blacksburg on the day of the Virginia Tech shooting and going into lockdown, waiting to hear from my then husband, who was in a classroom teaching at that time, waiting to hear about, you know, many of the students and colleagues and coworkers that I had, uh, some of whom perished in that tragedy. In the years that followed, I tried to make sense of what had happened. And one of the ways I did that was a little bit through the back door of asking questions about all of the mysterious and strange objects that people sent to us in the aftermath. I was too caught up in the initial grief and shock of what had happened to really appreciate at the time what was happening, the phenomenon that was unfolding in real time of people sending thousands and thousands of paper cranes and handmade quilts and teddy bears and care packages of cookies. I, I didn't get any of that in the moment in real time. But years later, as I tried to unpack my grief, 
I saw all these beautiful, incredible objects that an archivist at Virginia Tech had so carefully preserved and was putting on display each anniversary. And I wondered, who sends these objects? Who are these people? And why are they doing this? What what are they hoping to accomplish? You know, 32 hand-painted Pisanki eggs. Who's taking the time to make that fragile, beautiful artwork and send it to strangers? So much like you, you know, my background is in documentary filmmaking, which similar to reporting, it's you ask questions and you seek answers. And then you end up usually with a lot more questions. <laughs> so I started to make a documentary about these objects and trying to track down who sent them and understand that phenomenon when the Sandy Hook school shooting happened. The December 14th, 2012 shooting in Newtown, Connecticut is one of the events people mention to me most often when I start talking about public tragedies. And to be honest, I did not want to discuss it on this podcast. I have a pretty high tolerance for discussing trauma, but as a parent, I find it way too hard to talk about events involving young children. But what Alpin shared with me wasn't about mourning the 26 people who lost their lives at Sandy Hook Elementary School that day. It was about a different kind of trauma. Tell me about your initial contact with with the folks at Sandy Hook. Were they, you know, how how did that happen, and and how do you get in? Because you know, if if you're talking about real time, there's a whole lot happening. That, you know, I, it it may or may not be welcome to get a call saying, "Hey, I I'm making a documentary. I'd like to talk with you." I thought long and hard about how to reach out to the folks at Sandy Hook, when to do that. And honestly, even if I really wanted to do this, because I experienced firsthand the media invasion that happened at Virginia Tech following the shooting there and how obtrusive many reporters were with their super long lenses and TV cameras and satellite trucks. I was really grateful for the reporters who were local and who did such amazing work because many of the media were, were definitely outsiders and I didn't feel brought that respect and sensitivity to the, to the process. So with Sandy Hook, I decided a couple of things up front. One is that I was not going to contact any of the victims' families. That was not what my story was about. I wanted to track objects and stuff and decisions around how we make memories and how we commemorate and how we document history. Alpin's initial contact in Newtown was Chris Kelsey, the town's tax assessor, who'd taken on the job of sorting through the gifts sent in the aftermath. He stepped up running Christmas lights on generators along uh, the hook, the actual um, kind of drive towards the school, which became a very long, spontaneous shrine where people were leaving Christmas trees and teddy bears and all kinds of holiday decorations and memorial objects. And then he also stepped up in terms of being the person in charge of space and facilities for the influx of items that came in. So Chris was the first person I reached out to, and he actually was the person that was my domino to leading me to other people in the town. He became my intro uh, because I I approached him very respectfully as someone who had gone through what he was experiencing. 
And I also said I would not come to town until a hundred days had passed. I felt like that grieving period, that mourning period is almost a sacred kind of time. And I didn't want to disturb the community. And also I figured that was the time where the kind of news media might be dying down and leaving town. So it was a way to show interest in a deeper story, not a sensational story by being patient. Over the following year, Alpin spent time with Kelsey and others to hear their stories of dealing with the massive stuff. And there was so much stuff. 65,000 teddy bears. Massive, massive amount of toys, bicycles, crayons. You know, the the youth of the of the victims really led to people leaving different kinds of objects. That was something that I saw and really had to grapple with. And then, you know, something that I was very much interested in, you may be less interested in for your your purposes is, you know, what did people keep and what did they discard? Where did these objects end up? That is a practice that varies widely across different tragedies. And the idea that we should preserve or keep these objects is a very recent phenomenon. She found herself asking new questions. How do communities feel about receiving these objects? And does that experience match the intentions of the sender? The answer, maybe not. The sender is usually operating from a really beautiful place. They are grief stricken. They want to help. They want to do something. They want to let the community know they're not alone. And to really have a kind of catharsis to help themselves feel better, they send something over. And again, sometimes these objects are so beautiful. Sometimes they're strange. Like someone sent a box of Cheerios and tube socks to Virginia Tech that was what was comforting to them, you know, and uh, they they thought it might comfort someone else. So again, beautiful, even if strange, right? A beautiful idea. But one of the things I discovered in making the documentary is that all of these well-intentioned donations and gifts and packages pose an enormous logistical hurdle for the recipient community. While at least with Virginia Tech, there was a mail center, there was a place to receive packages you know, Newtown had no such facility. They were completely unprepared for the half a million letters and condolence cards that they would receive. The town hall became a mail center where just bin upon bin of U.S. mail was set out and stayed out for weeks so that townspeople could come and open them and read them. There was a team of hundreds of volunteers who decided to read the letters and write back to most of the letters. But to many people, some people I talked to who worked in that building, this was so painful. Walking through their workplace felt like a mausoleum every day where they could not escape the tragedy and were reminded of it over and over and over again. So all of these things were sent meant to be a comfort but to many people, they almost became a bit torturous in the day-to-day. Not something a sender is going to think about, right, or, or understand, but it became very real for a town of 27,000 when they have to, to process an unprecedented amount of material. There was so much mail, it shut down the regional sort facilities in Connecticut. They could not handle the volume. So 
beautiful intentions from around the world, but impossible to deal with. Five days after the tragedy, the National Parent Teacher Association shared a Facebook post requesting that paper snowflakes be sent to the Connecticut Parent Teacher Association to welcome the students back to a winter wonderland when school resumed. The result was a blizzard. Nine semi-trucks full of paper snowflakes later, Sandy Hook said, please stop. <laughs> please, please stop sending us things because what could we possibly do with any more paper snowflakes? So again, beautiful hand-cut papers from school children all over the country, right? One, just so beautiful and so precious and yet completely overwhelming for the community that received all of them. This story has really thrown a wrench into my whole podcast. <laughs> I laughed when I said it, but it was true. And it was a hard thing to untangle. The teddy bear I remember that had traveled from Illinois to Oklahoma to Pennsylvania to Colorado and beyond, it meant something to me. It meant something to every person who sent it on to a new place. And if you're wondering, like I did, whether the bear ever made its way to Sandy Hook, we don't know. I exchanged a few messages with Chris Kelsey, the tax assessor Alpin talked about. He told me he'd heard of the bear, but couldn't confirm that it was ever in Newtown. As I've said before on this podcast, I haven't come across too many people who remember the bear, but I know I'm not the only one who was touched by its message. But now, I was learning that not everyone would be happy to receive such an item, and the evidence had been there the whole time. A May 1999 story from the Denver Post mentions the bear as a special item sent to Columbine High School in the aftermath of the shooting there. But the story is really about the local park district looking for 30,000 square feet of warehouse space to hold all the objects sent to the community. To give you an idea of how much stuff they needed to store, that's more than 13 times the square footage of the average American home. So although I am deeply grateful for the Oklahoma City Bear and the lesson it taught me, I couldn't ignore the fact that these objects, sent with the best of intentions, could cause their own kind of trauma in a community. So what's the takeaway? Alpin had four simple words. No more teddy bears. That's the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how many teddy bears are sent, it doesn't do anything to undo the violence that happened. It doesn't do anything to help with that loss, at least in the way that the community needs. One of the best things we can do is to act locally when we are inspired by something terrible happening. If you want to do something good, if you want to comfort people who are suffering, you don't have to look at the most recent news story. You don't even have to look for a mass shooting. You can just look down the street. Where's your local soup kitchen or food bank for those experiencing food insecurity? Are there unsheltered people in your community who could use your donations? There probably are. Are there um, domestic violence shelters where they could use your beautiful handmade quilt or could really use your teddy bears to comfort some kids who are experiencing a crisis? There are plenty of places that want your teddy bears, but it's probably not the site of the most recent tragedy or mass shooting. The other thing Alpin recommends is taking action to bring about change. 
This could mean reaching out to elected officials or getting involved in nonprofit organizations. It does not feel nearly as good to text and call your politicians as it does to buy a teddy bear. I can tell you that. It is hard work. And in America, it sometimes feels relentless with the news cycle. I feel like I have sent the same letter for almost 20 years to my representatives and senators. But there is change happening. It does happen. It is slow. It is bureaucratic. But that is the place where I try to channel my grief because the world has enough stuff. Ultimately, the Sandy Hook stuff went in all different directions. A select few significant pieces were archived by the local public library. Usable items went to Newtown residents or nonprofit organizations around the world. And then there was the rest. There were many teddy bears that were left outside on the spontaneous shrine with Christmas trees and Christmas lights that I mentioned to you along the, what they, uh, the locals called the hook, right? The Sandy Hook street or area. And those objects and signs and mementos all sat through rain and snow and all kinds of inclement weather and were incredibly dirty and moldy from that experience. And there were also some donations that were just very challenging to keep either because of their size or scale or, you know, the, all of the paper snowflakes, the thousands and thousands of paper snowflakes, they, it didn't feel meaningful to keep all of them. So the town of Sandy Hook did something very interesting and unusual, which is they chose to incinerate these objects or cremate is their preferred term, these objects, and to create what they have been calling sacred soil. So they took the ashes from this burn. They used uh, one of Connecticut's trash incineration facilities, and they collected all of that ash. And that ash, to the best of my knowledge, uh, was incorporated into the recently completed Sandy Hook Memorial, the permanent memorial. The folks at the trash facility, they actually cleaned out an entire area. They sanitized an entire area of their facility so that it would be a clean burn that wouldn't be mixed in with any trash or any other objects. So it was treated with incredible reverence, even in the way that they disposed of donations. When I first watched Alpin's documentary and learned the fate of the stuff, it made me sad. But hearing her talk about the many things these objects went on to do, the people who were helped by them, brought a smile to my face. And the inclusion of the sacred soil in the memorial seemed a beautiful tribute to the people of Sandy Hook, as well as those from around the world who wanted to help in the community's time of grief. For Alpen, telling the story of the stuff has made a difference in how she approaches trauma, tragedy, and yes, stuff. You talked about moving on now to like action more than stuff. Is that something that came out of making the documentary, do you think? Yes, 100%. Making the documentary, finishing the documentary brought me to a very different place of understanding. At the beginning of making it, I would definitely describe myself as a preservationist, someone who really wanted to keep, maybe at the extent of hoarding, things and archives about the past. But over the course of making the documentary, I really started to change and reshape my ideas about how much we should keep. I became overwhelmed with the task of keeping everything. And then also as the years went by, especially since I finished the work um, and seeing 
more tragedies and more new cycles. I've almost done a complete reversal of where I started out, you know, decades ago of wanting to save everything. Uh, I'm not quite at the extreme of wanting to save nothing, but I'm pretty close. (laughs) It's, it's been a real transformation. And I think some of that too has also though come from my own healing Making the documentary absolutely was my way of processing the grief. I sat with footage and those objects from the tragedy day after day for over three years making that piece. That was a lot of time to sit and sometimes to be moved to to tears and to reckon with everything that had happened. And so I found my way through. I've been reflecting a lot on what making this podcast has meant to me. Revisiting the crash of TWA 800 has not brought the catharsis I was expecting. But having the great privilege of telling these stories has made me think differently about the way we discuss and memorialize events. And the conversations I've had with people, both on and off the record while producing this series, have meant more to me than any object ever could. So whether that Oklahoma City bear is sitting on someone's shelf or was shipped to parts unknown, or came to its final resting place as sacred soil in Newtown, I think it's done its job. One of the last things Alpin said in our interview was that we keep objects because we want to remember, but there comes a point when constant remembering holds us back from joy. Maybe that's part of the reason why the person who sent the bear from Oklahoma City boxed it up and shipped it to Pennsylvania. Whoever they are, I hope they were able to find joy. And to everyone listening, I hope you are too. I can feel I feel like the wind, a voice is strong.